0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with
1: your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge.
2: What's up, everybody? And thank you for hanging out with us <coughs> on this Monday for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And as always, we want to thank each and every one of you for joining us every week. And then calling us and emailing us when we're not around. We love the fact that it annoys you guys when we don't put up an episode, because that means we're doing something right, not because we want to torture y'all. But once again, Jeff is not going to be able to join us tonight, but as always, joining us is the ever so faithful Henry Sledge. Henry, how are you doing tonight, sir?
1: Doing okay. <clears throat> doing okay. Got the splint off my arm, so it's, you know, moving in the right direction
2: welcome to the what's the Scud up podcast between joe uh, between henry and my family we're simply a box of broken toys <laughs> But i'll tell you who's not a broken toy and that's our guest tonight go ahead henry do the honors you booked them please yeah do the absolutely
1: honor. we uh really happy to have our guest tonight is my good buddy james scott james is the author of five books four of them on the pacific war one of them on the vietnam war uh all of them meticulously researched and beautifully written. I'm in the middle of one of them right now. He just has a new book coming out uh, really soon, if not already called black snow. And that's, that's about the B 29 bombing campaign of Japan. But like any rock star wants to talk about his latest album,
2: James is very
1: graciously
2: do (laughs) it. I said, the fans want to hear the greatest hits.
1: Yeah, The the fans (laughs) want to hear the latest album, but, but James has graciously agreed to talk tonight about, his second book, The War Below. And this is the story of three submarines that battled Japan. So, Don, I know you've been interested in talking subs and I had already kind of had wind of the fact that James wrote this book. So I reached out to him and and he fortunately agreed to come on the show. So James, we're we're super happy to see you, man.
3: Gentlemen, thanks so much for having me on. It's good to be with you guys tonight. So uh, super excited to chat about The War Below. Yeah. Well, I know
1: that's digging deep into the James Scott catalog, but. <laughs> hey,
3: no, uh, so no, it's not, no, 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 just all softballs tonight. No. uh yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, okay. I'll, I'll lob a slow one for you to get you started. <laughs> you won the Samuel Elliott Morrison award, not for this book, but for your first book. So having won that award, have you, I've read several volumes of that series. I know how iconic that is to, you know, to Pacific War scholarship. I mean, it's a staple of information. Did, have you read like every volume in that, in that whole
3: series? Yeah. You know, I've read a lot. I mean, because I mean quite, I mean, a lot of, a lot of guys I know and respect have, have been recipients of that honor over the years. I mean, Jim Hornfisher, Ian Tolman, oh, yeah. uh, you know, just to name a couple, Uh and and so yeah, so and I, and I think that it, you know, it's an award that's done by the New York Commandery of the Naval Order, and they're just a a dynamite group of individuals. And uh, in fact, I'm I'm going to go visit them in September when my new book comes out. That's going to be the first or one of my first stops, kind of on the new um, sort of a promotional tour for the book, is to go up there and have lunch and give a uh, give a talk there. And and it's just you know, they really have their hands on what's coming out when it comes to, you know, the, um, the military and, and the Navy. And so I, I, mm-hmm. I think they pick dynamite books. So.
1: Well, you know, you, you just mentioned Jim Hornfisher, I, our mutual friend, James, our mutual friend, uh, Richard Frank. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I know Richard spoke very highly of Jim Hornfisher to me and, 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 and in fact, one of the cover blurbs on The War Below, this is the most absorbing narrative of submarine warfare that I've read in years. James D. Hornfisher, Fisher, author of The Last Stand of the Ten Can Sailors. I mean, that's that's pretty strong praise from a pretty strong historian right there that, that had to make
3: you proud. Absolutely. Yeah. And Jim, I mean, I was just uh, just a dynamite individual. And uh, there's really there's pretty much not a day that goes by that I'm not reminded of either the, uh, the just the, the many stories he always shared and uh, and or you know, coming across, you know, his work and whatnot. I mean, I was just, you know, literally two weeks ago using, uh, one of his books, uh, of flood tide, trying to pull out a few uh, tidbits in there. a uh, Another project I'm working on. So I mean, Jim, mm-hmm. was just, you know, dynamite. In fact, he, you know, and, and I wasn't one of, he was a, in addition to being a world war II author, you know, he was a literary agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't actually one of his clients, but you know, when my last book, um, Rampage came out. I mean, Jim came up here to Charleston, spent several days with me, I mean, for the uh, book release. I mean, he was just a, he supported, you know, World War II historians, you know, across the board, hands down. It was just a, mm-hmm. a, a large amount. Uh,
1: James, I first got introduced to your work on our good buddy, Paul Woodedge, on his show. And you were talking about, I think, actually the first of, you've been on there more than once, but I saw you when you did your show on Rampage. Mm-hmm. But then I then I saw the one on target Tokyo and and then looking into your work, then I saw that you'd written on the war below. So take us back to to when you were prepping to write a book on submarine warfare. You know, one of the things that grabbed me just you had me right there when you said the USS drum. I live in Birmingham. You know, my dad's from Mobile right down the road, been to Mobile all my life, many times, right by the Alabama, you know, right by BB 60, you got the drum. Now they have it in a cradle when I was a kid and would first go on it. I think they had it in the water, but I can remember as as a small kid, you know, walking through that thing with my older brother and, and my dad was still a young guy at that point. And of course, you know, he's looking at it through the eyes of a former infantryman and, and, you know, I think being enclosed in a in a metal cylinder 200 feet sure. under water was not an idea that appealed to him but what why the drum why the USS tang why the USS Silversides? well why those three submarines
3: got it well let, is, you know, is that a
1: softball for you
3: yeah that's perfect thank you <laughs> okay you can, okay that's, perfect That's like a t-ball one right yes now. yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, no, you know, I mean, the submarine war is one of those that um, I mean, I just am absolutely fascinated by it. And I don't think it's gotten a lot more attention in recent years than it used to, but it hasn't gotten the attention that it really uh, warrants. I mean, because it inherently, I mean, it was the submarine Blockade of Japan that effectively broke the Japanese economy so much so that by that by June of forty four summer of forty four I mean the Japanese economy sort of crosses the Rubicon so to speak and begins what ultimately amounts to its death spiral and
0: mm-hmm. and that's
3: before the first B twenty nine ever even lifts off from the Mariana Islands for strikes on the on, on, on the main island of Honshu there mm-hmm. and uh, and, you know, and it's one of those stories where I mean they don't you know you 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 look at books on Midway and Coral Sea and the you know, late golf and whatnot, and, and you know, there these dramatic sea battles. And uh, and so much of the submarine war is it's not. I mean, it's, it, it's a war that was fought week by week, month by month, literally year by year of attrition, of just mm-hmm. wearing down and grinding down the Japanese merchant fleet, uh, as well as also some of their naval ships, but really just you know, just cutting them off and, and strangling them. And, and, and that's the thing is Japan was like, they just learned no lessons from World War I. I mean, you, know, you mm-hmm. look at what the Germans did to, to England and whatnot, and you think, you know, wow, well, the last thing an island nation should do really is get into a big war where they can be blockaded. And where the mm-hmm. Japanese do, boom, right there. After, you know. <laughs> and not only that, I mean, they're just a material bankrupt nation. I mean, that's the thing. Right. With Japan is, I mean, they can't grow enough food to support their population. You yeah, know, they're in the lead up to World War II, their population tripled in size. You know, 85% of that country is mountainous. So they're they mm-hmm. really don't have the ability to to grow enough food. So I mean, literally there's there's they're, they're, they're um, um, their fishermen are going all the way to Alaska and a- almost to the Panama Canal just to catch enough food. They're having to import rice. I mean, I think about the only thing that they are materially self-sufficient in is fish oil. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really just, you know, and, and so they have to import everything. And of course, the critical things they need are all like your wartime supplies. Things like oil, bauxite, rubber, and of course, you just start strangling them with submarines and it just it just cripples their mm-hmm. work. And so, so that's what makes it such interesting. So now why those three boats? And, that, yeah. and, that, and that's a great question. Cause you know, the um, about 288 subs ultimately participated in the Pacific war. And so I was going to tell just the story of three. And so, mm-hmm. you know, how, how, how do you pick which three you want to tell? And that, and that's the challenge. I spent a lot of time just reading patrol reports, reading books on different boats. But so I was looking for different story, you know, each of these submarines sort of could, could sort of stand in for other boats. For example, um, the Silver Sides is just, of course, had had, had just an absolute dynamite record. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it had two really terrific skippers, um, you know, who really <laughs> represented, you know, Creed Burlingame really represented the early Wild West frontier days of the submarine war, whereas Jack Coy was the much more polished, scientific, mm-hmm. engineering-minded skipper that was needed later in the war. You know, they also had one of the only appendectomies uh,
1: yes right there in the in the oh yeah. man that
3: that just made me cringe to read your description of that and that's such a great story so, how can you not get in, get into that and you know and yeah. so the tang represented all the boats that were lost it also had the great story of mush morton and the friendship he had with dick o'kane and then of course the drum was this had the story of mike Renskoff, the youngest submarine mm-hmm. skipper of world war ii and so you know each of these boats kind of had a different figurative symbolic role and and that, that's what pulled me into those those three boats
1: when you're you know I'm, I'm trying to imagine that i mean we've all been in jobs where we've followed in the footsteps of somebody before us and we may have felt the pressure to you know to succeed if that person before us succeeded and you know imagine going on a boat in that era with a, a you know, following a successful skipper that the crew liked and you have a completely different style and you're coming in, taking them, you know, into harm's way, which obviously submarines are not a defensive weapon and you've got to win their popularity and their confidence. I mean, I, I can't, so when you read about guys like mush Morton and O'Kane and, uh, I mean, they had to have just been incredibly gentlemen of incredible character.
3: Yeah, they were. And I'll tell you, you know, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things Jack Coy said is, you know, he came in after Creed Burlingame. And you know, Burling game had been, you know, wildly successful. And the first thing Jack right. Coy did, he didn't change anything. Yep. He said, you know, we had to do different styles. Like I was just gonna spend a but you know, spend a first patrol or two, figure out the crew, figure out how to do it. And and then gradually began to sort of implement the changes he felt needed. And that was wise, you know, I mean, because uh, it was, and you know, that one thing they do have is a lot of the crew members also would cycle on and off. And so you constantly, right. submarines are constantly getting new blood coming on board and, and and things like that as well. So within a few patrols, a lot of the men will rotate off.
1: Yeah. there Wasn't there only one main character in the book who really was with his boat, like the majority
3: Yeah, Rinskoff. I mean, Mike Rinskoff ends up serving pretty much the entire war on board the Drum, and uh, and and so he is. And he starts off as this young, pretty much like a lieutenant, as I recall. You know, fresh out of the Mm -hmm. naval academy in his early twenties, and by the age of twenty-six, he's skipper of that boat, and which is he's the youngest fleet boat skipper of World War II. Yeah, I was about to say, I thought that was that was the youngest. Yeah. And, and he was just this great, I mean, and, and he was alive when I was working on the book and was just oh, an really? amazing individual. I spent a lot of time with him. I mean uh, when I was writing these stories and he shared personal documents and things like that, of course, you know, he was at sea when his son was born. I mean, it was just personal sacrifices, but he was pretty much like, you know, he goes, I went from being like the guy that was sort of managing the commissary and you know, what we were going to eat, you know, the mess mess mm-hmm. officer all the way up to Skipper. So I mean, he was this homegrown, you know, commander, so to speak.
1: Well, uh, did you, in the process of researching that book, did did you ever go down to Mobile and, and go through oh, yeah. the drum?
3: Yeah, no, no, I spent a week down there actually, and was awesome. okay. You know, they they pulled the drum out of the water at that point, of, and uh, which is a really a wise thing. And and, and yeah. we're actually we've been having that debate here in Charleston, South Carolina, where I live, because we have the clamagore here, and it's uh, the the big fears are it's going to ultimately one day everybody's going to show up down at the pier, and it's going to be underwater. And mm-hmm. So, uh, because it's, it's kind of so like badly. the Solomons, yeah, so badly rusted, and uh, and so he, um, so there, so yeah, so I went down there, and uh, I, the folks that were restoring the boat at the time were just fantastic. I mean, they let me mm-hmm. for the crack a dawn. I stayed all day, and you know, for reporting on this, you know, I was really interested in sort of a. I brought a measuring tape and a camera, and wow. kind of crawled all over it. Took measurements between the bunks and things like that to kind of determine that. And you know what was one of the most fascinating things about that is when they had pulled the drum out of, of service and were making it a museum ship, they discovered um, down in the one of the old battery wells where the, the batteries had been a whole bunch of banker's boxes of really and left over from World War II, and um, and so and these were just an amazing window into what it was like. I mean, they had the receipts, for example, for like how much food was delivered before patrol, wow. and so you could see that you know they were taking out you know, chicken in 3,000 pound you know, increments. <laughs> How many, I mean, 1,500 dozen eggs and things of that nature. Because, I mean, that was one of the things that really fascinated ward. me. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that really fascinated me about submarines in, in, in World War II, because they had to be totally self-sufficient, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. during, during that period between World War One and World War Two, I mean, you, you had these really these amazing uh, naval officers and pioneers who sort of revamped, I mean, not only the design of American submarines but also sort of the whole mission of what submarines I mean were. They were no longer going to be you know operating you know as coastal defenders around the Panama Canal or ports. You know, these were going to be commerce raiders. I mean these mm-hmm. were be, I mean swashbucklers they were going to go all the way across the ocean into the enemy's backyard and sink ships. And so they had to be completely Self sustaining and independent. I mean, there's no Costco out in the ocean. I mean, there's no Walmart. I mean, you, you if you need it, you got to take it with you. And so and, and it became, you know, like a puzzle of how you put every, how you fit 80 men and all these supplies into this 27 foot wide tube and, mm-hmm. and be able to be gone for up to three months. And, and that's that fascinating.
2: And to have the foresight to know that, okay, technology being what it is. We are going to be required have to surface to recharge our batteries, to refill our oxygen tanks, and hopefully do it at night. But the and I'm sure when you were down and doing your measurements, and I'm sure no matter how many times you go back, because I've done some living history events on the um, SS American Victory, it's a Liberty ship in Tampa Bay. And when you're going down those stairs through those bulkheads, just how small everything was. And I, now obviously, I'm ridiculously large at six foot five, but even anybody at a more modest size just realize how confined everything was. How small the bunks were. How I'm sure you were researching. So when you try to describe it in first person, how cramped that the little area between your bunk and the one above you is. Just everything is just small and compact to fit as much people and material on as possible.
3: Absolutely, but you know the amazing thing is, and is in, in that time period, I mean, the, the fleet boat, which was sort of the dominant design boat of World War II, I mean, it was like a cruise ship compared to the ones from World War One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And weren't there yeah. some of those World War One boats for the first year of the war? Yeah, we had less boats, you know, and those things. I mean, they they were terrifying, I mean, you know. And so, I mean, the fleet boat was like, I mean, it was like going on the Queen Mary, you know. <laughs> They're just a little you know,
2: short of uh, shoveling coal down there. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'll tell you, Yeah, and the submarine service was a uh, was an all volunteer service, and so you know everybody that that went on board had to you know they they chose to do it. And and one of the things I always found so amazing is so many of these men were products of the Great Depression. And mm-hmm. one of the things that really drew them there is you know they a lot of them had had just these austere, rough childhoods. And one of the things that was most appealing was that if you were on a submarine, you could eat anytime you wanted. They had set meals, of course. But if you wanted a sandwich, you could get a sandwich. If you wanted ice cream, wow. you could get it. And so, uh, so, you know, they, uh, and, and a lot of the guys will tell you, you know, even though fresh food would run out within a matter of a few weeks, you know, they, they all would all swear up one side and down the other, that that some of the best eating they ever did was the uh, food on board, those submarines. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so it took a lot of crafty cooks, you know, and, and good yeah. submarine cooks were, uh, they were in high demand.
1: Do you, did they do? you said it was an all volunteer force for the subs do you, did they do any like psych profiling for like claustrophobia and
3: things like that or was there much
1: back then they was did, there
3: they did some of that and really the big one was they they practiced um how to escape from a, a uh, from a damaged submarine and they actually had a couple of these towers that were about 100 feet tall that were filled with water one of them was in uh, Connecticut and one of them was at Pearl Harbor and they made the men practice getting out with these moms and lungs these sort of wow. rebreathers. And that was kind of the define. that was kind of sort of the, the main test. If they figured if you could do the diving tube and get out safely, then you had what it took to be on a, on board a submarine. So that, uh, I think that was about the benchmark that they used for the, you know, so. and if
2: you're a coal miner from Eastern Kentucky, it helped.
3: Definitely. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> for sure. <clears throat> well, I think wow. I read, oh, not it,
2: to cut you off, but I'm looking at this, okay. this, the months and long. Yeah. That's a device and a half, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The only way I can explain this for those of you listening, um, think about the webbed designed um, ammo carriers. Like you would see them have that vest, the landing vest that they'd shove some of the uh, ammo. Take that and then put two of the oxygen breathers from a gas mask with the hose. Shove that in your mouth and then put on what looks like uh, a nose clip wrapped with a rubber band. That's just attached by a cord so you don't lose it. <laughs> and you're basically there. That is about as rudimentary as it gets.
3: Oh yeah, just, looks like we made it uh, in the garage.
2: Oh, <laughs> we probably did.
1: <laughs> How can did? You, so you said they had hundred foot towers filled with
3: water to <laughs> test it. Tell me, can you
1: describe that process, or is that
3: is that yeah, getting yeah. into? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, they they had different depths that they they had. I think three different depths that they tested them at to just be able to you know you first you didn't obviously put them in at a hundred feet of water to start with. You sort of worked your yeah. way up to that, and um, and so and and then, and then of course you had to finally pass the the hundred feet. And uh, in fact, actually, the tower at Pearl Harbor is still there. If you go there now, and it's got a conference room on top of it.
0: And,
1: uh,
3: really, it's there, and so uh, yeah, and so that but that was kind of the. Uh, I mean, as medieval as that sounds <laughs> in your t- in, in in your challenges, that was kind of the main the main benchmark. And I, I, I recall one of the guys saying that they had uh someone had painted mermaids on the walls inside of one of the uh, tanks, so that you could see that as you were sort of uh, coming up. So, I'll see. I never to-
1: knew that's how they train those guys. I mean, that that's a pretty. Thing. i mean look I, we have a pool here we got an underground pool the deep end is like six and a, maybe six foot okay i don't even like to be like at the
3: deep end no. you know, for more than five seconds underwater and i start like okay i gotta get up oh yeah and i mean think about that these guys on board the tang use those to get off i mean and they were mm-hmm. 180 feet underwater so i mean they you know and generally in in world war ii i mean when a submarine went down everybody was lost i mean it was not yeah. like, there weren't a, lot, a whole lot of cases of people getting off, but there were, and they had to use the Momsen on one.
2: Yeah. I, I found this great website. We'll include on our webpage, WTSP world war along with your episode about uh, Momsen and all the things he invented, but they're talking about, he was committed to developing equipment that would allow submariners to escape. See what I did that submariners, not submariners to escape from sunken submarines. He followed two tracks. First was the modified diving bell that would eventually involve into the McCann submarine rescue chamber. And they actually have photos of an early one that is perched atop the uh, USS Falcon in May of 1939. So that's how early they started working on this equipment. It was pretty crazy. Absolutely. Breathing apparatus, oh. the M1940, months in use for submarine rescues. Yep. Here's a, a, an up-to-date version. Yep. So we will definitely post these um, on the website along with this episode. Go James, ahead. I
1: think I was reading when you when you talked about your sources for the War Below, I mean, when these subs came back from a patrol, they did, what, 30, 32 page reports to kind of detail everything?
3: They did. Yeah, they did patrol reports, which were uh, which were awesome to be able to work with. You know, um, they had, you know, they sort of breakdowns of all the attacks, which is terrific. I mean, how long the torpedo mm-hmm. runs were they had stuff about the tides, the weather, things like that. And so um, they're really a, a, a terrific window into, and of course they're written as soon as these guys come back into port. And so you can combine mm-hmm. that with, of course, the deck logs, which are in the national archives. And so, you know, which are those two do- sets of documents really create a, a contemporary running narrative of, you know, of, of what went down on each of these boats. So that's kind of mm-hmm. your, your baseline of research to kind of be, you know, chart you know day to day to day and then of course on top of that you want to layer in diaries letters mm-hmm. history, that's what i that's what all I that kind of stuff that's yeah that's
2: one thing i jotted down i was going to ask you when you're researching these subs if you found that maybe the crew of one sub tend to have one or two guys that were a little more pen happy than the others that provided you with a more personalized uh, documentation of their experience on that sub
3: Absolutely, yeah, and I've always found there's always like one or two guys who just they're they're they've got a girlfriend and a mother and they write all the time and that's what you're after,
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'll
3: tell you, like I had this great story with the Silver Sides. There's this um, one of the officers on board the Silver Sides was a guy by the name of John Bienna, and he had passed away uh, along about 1975 or so. Um, I mean, right around the time I was born, actually. And so oh. I'd gotten a copy of his obituary, and you know, on top of you know, and when I was working on this book back in like 2000. Eight, nine, and whatnot. Um <clears> the <throat> drum for example, was still having reunions. So, I mean, there were uh, lots of veterans that I could talk to and things like that. But I was also trying to find, you know, folks who had passed away. And so I, I found his obituary. And in his obituary, I got the name of a son. I tracked down his son who was living on Maui. And I called a son out of the blue and I said, Hey, you know, I'm working on this book. It's going to feature your dad's boat. And I, I know he's been deceased now for. You know, for decades but by any chance did he leave behind any letters or diaries or anything like that and he said he, he said you know it's it's interesting you called he said last year my my mom died and right before she died she came to me and she had a box and in that box were all of my dad's wartime letters Well wow. you do you know hold on to these someday somebody's gonna want them and so, literally, about a month later, this package shows up and it's got over 300 pages of John Biana's letters. I mean, there were so many letters, and sometimes he wrote multiple ones in a day that I had to like put them all in order. I created mm-hmm. some of table of contents, and of course, I took it to Kinko's and had them bind it so that like, my kids didn't knock it all out of order. <laughs> And yeah, you know, a lot of them were written on Silver's Head's uh, stationery. I mean, and it was all those stories that like you don't find in the patrol. Logs, yep. That you don't find in the deck logs. I mean, it was like the time that these guys in the torpedo room found these mice. Of course, mice would get on board periodically in the crates of food and things. But they adopted these mice and they named them Yes. Right. <laughs> Juliet, you know, and... Uh, and one day they realize Juliet's gone missing oh, and they, no. they have this terrible realization. They've accidentally shot her out the torpedo. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, they never like, knew, right? They never knew yeah. what happened to Juliet. I mean, look, she's going to go. If, if you're going to go anywhere on the submarine, that's going to be the only
2: way out <laughs> from the torpedo <laughs> rooms. So. Well, Bless Horatio. I love so, so
3: well. So they just had these great, and those are the kinds of stories You had know, the practical jokes they had about, you know, who got seasick and you had know, the time that the flying fish would land on deck and things like that. And they'd serve them up in the kitchen and, and all that. So
2: I just had a very sad realization. Imagine if you will, 80 years from now, you're an aspiring historian wanting to write a book on maybe a war that happened in the two thousands or maybe, you know, future from now. You reach out to the grandson of a vet and say, hey, by any chance, do you have your father's email archive from (laughs) 2015? Because no one writes anything down. There's not going to be any photos. There's not going to be a written dot. It's all going to be, hopefully you find a digitized photo on a thumb drive somewhere and somebody backed up a PST file in 1999, and that's the best you're going to get. It's going to be so hard.
1: That's a good point, Don.
3: I've thought about that too, man. What? (laughs) It terrifies me. You're going to get a whole bunch of text messages, OMG, LOL, things like that. Yeah.
2: And you're going to have to rely on heavily skewed uh, news clips that are skewed based on the politics of the time. That's basically your reference material and whatever you know, official logs that the people involved wrote. But the, the personalized stuff, it's all going to be gone.
3: You know, the one advantage that you will have, though, is that you will have things, for example, like um, helmet cam footage and yeah. stuff like that of operations that that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Like, I do think there's going to come a day when, like, somebody's going to write a, just a killer book on the, uh, the takedown of uh, Osama bin Laden's uh, place in Pakistan, and you'll have that footage, you know, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that stuff finally gets out. So there will be some trade-offs, but I'm with you. I mean, I just... Look, I'm I'm am I'm a man of the past. Yep. I like World War II. It just I am comfortable there. I oh, know it. You know, I stay there. And I will say, you know, one of the things I'm constantly amazed at is just is just how I mean some of these guys and and, and women were just phenomenal writers. Mm-hmm. And their letters, I mean, they're just And their penmanship. Their penmanship, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was an
2: art. I mean, it really yeah. was an art. Well yeah. the the you 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 think for a second, well, that was their key form of communication. Of course everybody's a writer. But then you think, now well, our key form of communication is typing and texting, but all we have is shorthand and emoji. so you still can't make that relation. But yeah. It's, yeah no. And th- how much the English language has changed. Uh, in some of the first iterations of this podcast, when I was doing it by myself, I have like six or seven Time Life magazines of the time. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go through and read some of these articles or read some just the way the written language was written and you're trying to read it in modern day. And it's, when you play it back, it sounds like, is this guy having a seizure? It's like, you have to, (laughs) you have to modify some of the language and the grammar to make it palatable to our ears of 2020 or 2018. When I started this, just the language in and of itself was even different.
3: Yeah, no, it definitely was. I mean, the jargon, the slang, I mean, all of that. And, uh, and so, and I'll tell you, you know, one of the things—I mean, the newspapers at that time period were, I mean, just a goldmine because you know, look, you, your media came and just you know, radio broadcasts and, and right. newspapers, and so I mean, when you know, you you get these accounts, you know, nowadays, and I was a former journalist, I mean, so I, you know, I, as news as newspapers sort of began to dwindle, I mean, the the news holes shrank and mm-hmm. the ability to do the long form journalism diminished, and but back then, you know, during World War II, I mean, it was nothing to have these just. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing accounts of battles and landings and all of that that were you know printed in newspapers and uh it's a it's a gold mine that doesn't that doesn't exist now
2: what was the I documentary know? that came out a few years ago about the um was it and one came back or um or something on netflix that was about the the major um the five five came back yeah I mean, that, it was. that was yeah. a great great little docu series. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I mean, look at some of these great writers. I mean, you know, uh, you know, that, that, that you had that were coming out at that time. I mean, you had, I mean, big American literary figures, guys like John Dos Passos decided, Hey, I'm going to go in and and write about what was going on. I mean, you know, Ernest Hemingway, I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, everybody was going in, you know, on top of just these really terrific, you know, foreign correspondents for a lot of these papers.
2: And then you got those like Mickey Rooney who came out of it, you know, he wasn't, you know, he was a, what, bomber pilot? Uh, no, he was a yeah. gunner and a, a B-17.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, and he wrote a, actually a really great memoir about it all. I mean, so, yeah.
2: What got and, you into the whole World War II thing? I mean, that's usually one of the first things we ask because everybody gets bitten by the bug in their own way. So let's roll back a little bit and we'll get back to your book. But just for the yeah. audience, what, what was it for you? Because I find it's, I always love to hear what it is for everybody because everybody has different lives and different things, but we all get bitten by that same bug, which is why we're all here.
3: Yeah. Well, actually, it's interesting. So, my, uh, I was always a uh, loved history. And so, I, uh, and so I studied history in college and was going to major in it. And then my, uh, my advisor said, whatever you do, don't major in the subject you love. So, I did English and Spanish instead. <laughs> and uh, of course, here I am practicing history. But my first job out of college was actually a public school teacher in Japan. And so that was in the 1990s, and so uh, you can imagine lots of Mm -hmm. veterans alive and whatnot. So I was in this little tiny town on the main island of Honshu, and at night I volunteered to teach English classes um, in our sort of for the uh, for the adults at the community center. And so you know it was like me and eight or nine of these uh, folks, and you know they and of course the war invariably came up quite frequently. People would say, you know, we were there used to be an American prisoner of war camp nearby. And so I would go pilgrimage out on the weekends and try to find that. And then, you know, I remember, uh, one night, one of the women talked about the uh, fire bombings of of Kobe and she had been in there during that time. Of course, that's the subject of the book I've just wrapped up. And so it just really piqued my interest. And so then with some friends, I road trip down to Hiroshima and,
2: uh, one weekend
3: and then, and so I saw the, you know, the, uh, the atomic dome and all that there and then about literally about a week or two later my parents were going to be in hawaii and so i was flying down to hawaii to meet them um and my dad was a retired naval officer and so of course the first stop we made was pearl harbor so within the span of literally two weeks i saw sort of what bookended america's experience in world war ii you know so- pearl harbor and hiroshima and it just you know it was just like a, something clicked and so i ended up as a journalist uh, for a little while after that you know newspaper journalist for about six seven years and then you know, i started writing books i had the opportunity my editor at the time said you know what do you what do you want to write about now and i said you know i'm interested in world war ii and what was his reaction to that was he like oh no or, or was he like oh great cool. go to the whole
2: library for <laughs> No, i
3: you know i'd just done my first book which was about my dad and uh so my father was a uh, was a young naval officer on the USS Liberty, which was a spy ship that was sent into the Middle East. It was part of this mobile listening platform that um, it was operated by the Navy and the uh, NSA at that time. And so they were um, sent, and you may remember the Pueblo, which was captured by North Korea. It was kind of one of the sister ships in the same program. And so the Liberty was sent into the Middle East and it was attacked by the Israelis. And 34 Americans were killed and over 170 were injured. And my dad was the damage control officer. And so you know it was his job that day to kind of keep the ship from sinking. So that was the subject of my first book. And uh, and so when I finished that up, my, um, my my editor actually goes, "Well, what interests you now?" And I and I said, Sub "Submarines, World War II." And so I literally pitched the war below with a three page synopsis of what I wanted to do. And my editor was like, "All right, we'll do it. Let's do it." And so, which was a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways because I, I sort of sold an idea without a narrative. And so, you know, I've got this idea that like, all right, I want to write about submarines. I've always been fascinated by them since, you know, being a kid and going to the Charleston Naval Base. And, and, uh, but I don't have a story. I don't have an arc that I want to tell. And so, and I struggled a lot with that book because I had to figure out, you know, because of all the characters sort of come and go throughout the war and on different boats, you know, how do you string that together and yet also tell the story of the totality of the war, you know, the thirteen hundred and forty-seven days of, and so that, um, and so I learned a lesson after that. I said, you know, after that, every book's going to have to have sort of a, a, a traditional narrative arc. So I did the Doolittle raid. I did the Battle of Manila. I did the, you know, the firebombing of Tokyo. So, um, but the War Below was a uh, just a totally fascinating because uh, it allowed me to sort of nerd out on all the things I'd grown up being curious about and interested about with submarines. So
1: I know uh, I'm pictured. I'm picturing being in the drum with a tape measure, and you know, <laughs> yeah. kids and dads are walking through. Now, be careful, don't step on that torpedo. Oh, watch out, this nice man's measuring something.
3: Well, you know, I did the same thing on the silver side, so you know, which is a museum ship as well up in So I went up there in February one year, and of course, you know, there, there's snow 20 feet high, and <laughs> you know, the, oh, the lake is totally frozen over. He's and all. got out his
2: laser yeah. level.
3: Yeah. Well, but you know what was so awesome for there is like I got to go sit in the room where the appendectomy took place. You know, I went into the ward room and right there, you know, here's the table where this legendary surgery takes place. And so, I mean, it was just it's hallowed ground, you know, to get to go on those boats. And, get and there's boat a picture
1: boat. of it right there.
3: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. Is you that, know, we're lucky that there are a number of these World War II boats still around. You know that your people are able to get go and visit them. You've got the Pompanito in San Francisco, the Razorback in Little Rock. You've got, mm-hmm. you know, um, the Bowfin is in uh, Hawaii. You know, there's fortunately a number of these boats are still around.
2: And yet, sometimes, especially as we've learned through COVID, I think, um, especially we historian, you know, buffs or mil- military fanatics, whatever you want to call us. We sometimes take some of those museums for granted because we've been there so many times, but they so heavily rely on the donations people make when they visit. And so, you know, thank God, especially when it comes to some of those larger crafts, that there's groups out there to help provide the funding to maintain that stuff. But with that being said, we all need to remind ourselves occasionally to get out to the smaller mom and pop ones because I know we lost two of them here during COVID just because... When everybody shut down, their revenue stream just stopped completely, and their yeah. rent, their rent, kept coming in. And sadly, a lot of them had to either close. Like one of our big ones was the Southwest Florida Military Museum and Library. And one of the cool things they did—they actually started out just as a, as a um, group of veterans who would help other veterans mm-hmm. with their cl- filing their claims, and they would feed vets on Wednesday. And people would just start donating things to them until they finally had to rent out an old grocery store, but. Due to COVID and the lack of visitors, they're now in what used to be the Disney store in our mall. They've actually gone down that small to uh, what used to be a grocery store with Jeeps inside, motorcycles to what used to be a Disney store because COVID just about crushed them.
3: I'm hoping we can come back from all that. Yeah. So. Well,
2: so
1: how many? I think there were like three dozen archives and libraries that had records that you used for the war below. Did you,
3: did you go to every one of those? Yeah. I went to most of them and I may have used a research assistant here or there if if it was a little off the, or, or, or if it was one, um, you know, collection I needed that an archivist could copy and send to me. But you know, the challenge is, and one of the reasons this one was so, labor intensive was because, you know, you're looking for the personal papers. Yeah. Right. And of course, you know, those are, you know, your, your major sources of, of papers and things like that are going to be, you know, national archives and stuff like that. But, you know, when you're starting to look for, you know, so-and-so's letters and things like that. So often families leave them to their local historical societies. Mm-hmm. And, their local, and, 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 and people don't realize, I mean, these can be gold mines for when you're, when you're searching for these stories, you know, this person lived in you know, Charleston, South Carolina, for example, where I am. And, you know, they, they did a bunch of oral histories with the local historians and all those things land in the historical society. That's where you're going to go to find those things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's kind of part of the historical scavenger hunt, you know, that, it, that that goes into these projects. But that's also the fun of it, you know, hunting right. them and tracking them down. And, you know, thankfully we have tools like, you know, the Internet and WorldCat and places like that <laughs> that kind of help facilitate that.
2: When you were researching your books, did you come across any? Uh, well, when researching the contents for the submarine, um, did you come across any personalized complaints, uh, concerns, or issues with the what some may argue the hated MK fourteen <laughs> torpedoes and the oh yeah and the yeah, non- yeah, was- I just learned about those. I'm currently reading the Fatal Dive, which is the yeah. um, solving the World War II mystery of the USS Grunion. I think you pronounce yeah. it. And there's a whole chapter on the MK 14s and I, that's the whole thing's new to me. And
3: Yeah, that's a big issue. I mean, the whole, the whole, uh, bad torpedoes was a real th- And it really hampered the submarines war effort in the, in, in the first year and a half of the war. And, uh, because you know, essentially you had these skippers coming back that were, you know, reporting to their, their, their supervisors and Hey, you know, I was right on this Japanese ship and I you know, pulled the trigger and nothing happened. And, you know, something's wrong we've got a bad weapon and you had the guys with the gun club with the bureau of uh, you know um uh was it was the uh, ordinance saying mm-hmm. no it's your skippers are bad shots and so you had mm-hmm. these competing narratives and because so really the money took, was
2: already spent they were oh yeah I mean, and
3: you have to you have, people have to remember I mean, a torpedo is a complex weapon i mean these things are not it's you know i think a lot of people that don't know the ins and outs of it just think it's kind of like this underwater rocket when the reality is it's essentially a small submarine
0: you mm-hmm. know, it's got twin it,
3: propellers well, it, it, it has alcohol that it runs off as a fuel and everything and they were designed so that they could run underneath the keel of a ship detect the change in the magnetic field and then detonate and so for you know for the 1940s this was pretty uh pretty sophisticated machinery and and, and it, of course it was put in action without a, enough trial work but well, yeah, it took that, having an admiral like Charles Lockwood who was a submariner at heart to decide with his men and say, you know what we're going to run some tests on these and so he did just that down in Australia with a bunch of fishing nets and things like that. And sure enough, you realize that these things were running way too deep.
2: Not only are they running way too deep, but there's been reports of occasional circle backs. So not only were they detonating, they were circled back and and running feet underneath the sub that shot them. And once again, they're magnetically charged. And so not only do some of them not detonate, but some of them come right back at you like a boomerang. Uh, Okay. We have a problem here.
3: Yeah. We have two known cases of that. The Tang was one. And then the, the second boat escapes him, but it had one survivor. His last name was Kukendall and, uh, who had survived that. And, uh, and of course he walked out of a prison camp at the end of the war, having been rescued. Uh, but we don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, literally almost one out of every five boats lost. We don't know why a lot of them went down. It could have been others, um, that, that brought him back as well. And of course, that's a terrifying thing because, you know, the submarine is literally the size of a football field. And at the time you're taking your shot, you're, you're you're hardly moving and so suddenly this thing's porpoising back around and circling back like on a a boomerang you don't have any you know speed to be able to maneuver and you're just a huge target
1: and they never knew what caused them to boomerang back though when it happened to circle back.
3: no i think just the malfunctioning i mean because it was you know those were just the reported cases we had yeah and there's nothing really to study after that
2: and not only that but as the as the captain of the vessel, you're like, okay, I got X amount of tor- torpedoes, but out of those X amount are MK-14s that I really don't want to shoot. And so yeah. now it's almost like being an infantryman knowing that eight out of the 12 M blocks I have in my belt are full of duds yeah. or, or or too hot or might cause my receiver to blow up in my face.
3: Yeah, I mean, it had a total demoralizing effect on a lot of these skippers. And a lot of guys that were really talented and potentially could have offered a, yeah, a lot walked away and said, you know what, I'll take the desk job. Get yeah. me out. It must be me. Mm-hmm. And it demoralized a whole a whole wave of these guys. So.
1: They, had, they had, what, 24 torpedoes in the racks for, for a yes. patrol? Wasn't that standard? Yeah. Yep.
2: Talk about Jeez. choosing your shot and and – not being, you know, quick on the trigger. I mean, and that's more yeah. periscope time. That's more time being potentially observed. That's oh, more yeah. time being in a depth charge range. And so well, and just- you got to remember,
3: I mean, too, like when you leave Pearl Harbor, I mean, to get from Pearl Harbor to Japan is like almost two weeks. Wow. So, I mean, you, you're going, you're, you're going 3,500 miles across the uh, ocean there. What was the, just to deliver these 24 torpedoes. And so all that time, all that fuel, all that energy spent, For it to not work, and and of course, in the early stages of the war, the Japanese were incredibly confident. They didn't they didn't use escorts; they just sent their ships out. You know, I mean, it it was kind of like shooting fish in a barrel, and yet, you know, you're shooting blanks.
2: What was the average submerged speed of a sub back then? I mean, it wasn't very fast at all.
3: No, I'll tell you, the subs back then. So, it's important to remember. I mean, they they, they were really more like submersibles. These things were designed to, to. They were simply surface ships that could dive. And so when they ran on the surface, they used uh, diesel engines. And then when they dove, they switched over to battery power. And so the battery power, um, I mean, which these batteries were huge. I mean, the entire, um, basement well really of the, of the boat was, uh, was filled with these cells. And, um, but they could run, if they ran at eight knots, they would burn out their batteries in one hour, Jeez. Yeah. two knots. They, they would, they could go for 24 to 48 hours, essentially. So, when a submarine would, a lot of times they would, and that's why a lot of these skippers realized that you wanted to attack at night on the surface because you could sneak in at night. The Japanese were not early adopters of radar like we were, so they really used lookouts. You had this natural cover of darkness. So you could sneak in pretty close. You could line up the shots you wanted. You sort of wait wait for the enemy to maneuver in a position that you were, that was favorable to you. Take the shot, and then you could just hightail it out of there at full speed on the surface, you know, which you're running 21, 22 knots at that point and be gone before the Japanese destroyers could ever catch you. And so what a lot of these skippers realize is that, you know, when you first saw a Japanese ship in the morning, for example, and, you know, they would would scan the coastlines, and they loved the the ones that used coal and stuff like that because they left these black Mm -hmm. clouds. And that's when they became hunters. And so they would watch that, and then they would, you know, figure out what they were, figure out the position and also the course, and then they would just track them kind of like a wolf to its prey until nightfall. And then a lot of times you wait all night until after the moonfall until that you get them at that darkest point of the night. And then you can kind of come in and make your kill. And, uh, and so that was kind of the excitement of it. So throughout that entire day, you'd be on board this boat, all the sailors would be, they would know that they had their prey figured out. And it was all about, you know, just waiting and biding your time and, and getting that right position. Now, if you were the other challenge if you didn't attack at night and you were attacking during the day for example and you had to dive and the japanese escorts were all over you dropping depth charges you can't you can't run away underwater at eight knots and burn out nope. your batteries so it really required these skippers to have strategies so you know you would dive down several hundred feet and then you had to sort of anticipate how you would move and some of these guys would sort of spiral out from their position that they were in at two knots you know where you mm-hmm. would go in one direction and change course and go in the other and try to so it became sort of this cat and mouse underwater. And all of that, of course, is what made it so much more conducive for these guys to to, to attack at night. And, and that was a lot of the learning that they had to figure out on the job because when the war started, all these guys had been, you know, they were peacetime skippers having to learn how to fight in this new war and develop these tactics and these strategies.
2: And to do that blindly, with the exception of your one periscope, which you can't use when you're submerged, and, and open water is scary enough, but when I was reading the Lonely Vigil about the Coast Watchers of the Solomon Islands, the amount of rescue missions that these subs were doing to pick up, whether they're pilots, uh, missionaries, uh, allies, these guys were, like, going submerged right off the coast of these islands, not knowing exactly where the, the... the obstruction and the coral reefs were because the charts they had were a hundred years old from guys who marked it with you know with the twain rope and all that stuff it's like (laughs) Mm -hmm. you have no windows you have root. i mean you go out could you imagine i always love the time machine game you know whenever you're having a bad day off i got in a time machine went back to the front lines uh, in a foxhole any one of those guys would happily trade me for my problems could you imagine just Time Machine Game, picking up a skipper from a submarine, 1943, Put them down on your local fishing vessel, say, check out this Garmin that shows me where my fish are at. That reminds me, boy, they got <laughs> side scans. We can see cinder blocks on the bottom of the ocean. <clears throat> you can see uh, the new Garmin just, or Hummingbird, pick your depth finder on you. any fishing vessel. It's just The little cheap $140 Garmin depth finder I have on my kayak they would love to have 82 years ago. They're working off of pings and blips in a windowless vessel off the coast of these islands, not knowing if they're going to puncture, you know, scrape along a sharp, jagged coral or mine. Just to do all that blind to me is just so insane.
1: Wouldn't it? well, wasn't it on the silver size in New Guinea when literally one of the officers had a, a school atlas that yeah. they had to like copy for a picture of the port or something? They didn't even know which oh, yeah. which, which they, were,
3: they, they were taking measurements. You know, I mean they were having to do their navigation by the stars. I mean it's like you know, you know, nowadays like my watch has more horsepower in it than yeah. In in, in intellectual capacity than this entire submarine did i mean you're everything about it was that way and so uh but yeah and you have to remember too i mean in the pacific you know a lot of those are volcanic islands and so you've got all sorts of these uh underwater obstructions and things like that and you know we we still don't know why some of these boats didn't come back and it may very well be that they bumped into into these things exactly
2: well going back to the maps like henry was saying before we invaded Guadalcanal, we were pulling up maps from Guadalcanal from like adventure books from 80 years before like <laughs> we had nothing We're like oh well this book has a map of Guadalcanal that came out in you know 1857 and here's a couple of plantation guys who did some palm tree work I mean that's all we yeah. had when we when we came up with <laughs> operation watchtower
3: we got yeah. captain cook's maps right, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
2: Let's go down to the local bar and find a, a drunkard who used to run a plantation five years ago and see if he's willing to put on a pith helmet and send some scouts out and help us out. Was, <laughs> you know, what's the old saying? Necessity is the mother of invention. And, totally. and we quickly totally. rolled out some new technology then.
1: you know, speak- Were there, so looking at the sub war in, in total, I mean, were there a lot of boats, because like I said, I'm halfway through the book, so I haven't gotten to the end. How many of these things did just didn't come back?
3: Is, is there even a known number? Yeah, yeah, I think it was 52 of the boats, as I recall. 50? Jesus. Out of the 288 that served. So, I mean, yeah, you did have a huge, uh, huge losses. And so, like I was saying earlier, you know, too, when a boat was lost, I mean, typically it was all hands on board. I mean, because, yeah. you know, there's very little opportunity for people to get off.
1: I, when I was in at Auburn in, in college, I minored in German, and my, my German teacher was a lady whose father-in-law had been a U-boat crewman. And I looked it up because even in college, I was really into World War II history, not as much as I became so later in life. But out of like 32,000 German U-boat crew in World War II, I think 7,000 made it home. Yeah. Wow. And and I really wanted to, and I knew her, she was a super nice lady, but I really wanted to spend more time just talking to her like, man, your father-in-law must have had, of course, he probably didn't want to talk about
3: it. But Yeah, I mean, they lost hundreds. I mean like 700, I think. I mean, it was a crazy, I mean, that was a death wish, you know, during, particularly later in the war. I mean, because our, yeah. our technology was phenomenal compared to theirs. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was just a death wish. But
1: to go back to the American experience, I mean, to Don's point, of, you're basically operating blind. I mean, think about your sound guy. Yeah. Think about how much you rely on his ears. I, I can't even imagine how you take a person and train them I I, it's just mind boggling to me. I mean,
3: no, I mean, it's, it's an art form and you know, these guys, uh, I mean, you you depend on these guys to, to get it right.
2: You know, we talked about one of the things that attracts Henry and Jeff to aviation is the fact that these guys are in these cans up in the air, but worst case scenario, you have a halfway decent chance of escaping on a parachute submarine. It's even less. I mean, to crawl down that hatch and know that you're going on a battle run. I can only imagine. No, I couldn't. I couldn't even imagine what those crewmen, you know, your, your entry level cats, your, you know, your, your privates and all that to think about when they're sitting on that bunk after the hatch closes and they take off. It's just, I don't even know. I couldn't even start to wrap my mind around that.
3: Yeah. I think one of the, the, the best approximations, the best ideas we have of it is to look at, the experience of, of what went wrong for the, and what it was like for the men on the Tang, which of course, you know, was one of the boats that was lost, but in which a number of the crewmen did get off and, you know, of course they were stuck 180 feet underwater and, you know, in a, in a wounded submarine, I mean, it, this thing didn't just suddenly fill up with water right away. I mean, it was, parts of it were on fire underwater, uh, you got diesel you know, most fuel, most yeah, most of these men ended up in the uh, one of the torpedo rooms there that had the escape chamber. And, you know, once the batteries caught on fire, the black smoke and the, the fumes and, and and so it's seeping in there. And you, you imagine sort of the the, the the dim lights and the fog in there and it's sapping your energy. And it's just it's demoralizing. I mean, it's just it's, it's, it's truly a terrifying experience. And it goes on literally. For several hours until finally, you know, most of these men ultimately pass out from lack of oxygen and, 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 and die. And so, but we had those glimpses from those few men who, who fought against that that exhaustion and everything else to get off to, to kind of get a sense of just how awful that experience was. <laughs> that's the terror. That's what that's what you lived in fear of is is, is being stuck underwater in a burning gas-filled submarine, unable to get off. <laughs> Mean, it's terrifying is
1: there much out there james on on the japanese experience the japanese submarine experience su- yeah, submarine or- um,
3: yeah i mean the japanese you know, when the, when, you know the japanese just completely mismanaged their undersea war i mean they were convinced all along mm. that world war ii was going to be one with this great sea battle i mean this hollywood type scene and and they would win without recognizing that and, and it, that they should have fought the exact same type of war against us that we were fighting against them. Which, of course, you know, look, for every time you you come ashore in the Philippines or the Mariana Islands, I mean, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of American boats and transports and supplies and all that kind of stuff coming in. All of those are rich targets. All those are ways that, you know, the American supply lines can be cut off. and. And the japanese never realized that and the, and the mm-hmm. germans were constantly telling them you guys need to do to the americans what they're doing to you and they were like no no we're going to fight this one great sea battle and of course by the end of the war they were really desperate to have this great win of some sort to give them a better position at the negotiating table which of course never came but they i mean knock on wood for for the united states you know they never they never realized their their errors until it was far too late
1: so. well, could you really even say that like their their strategy for their eye boats, i guess is what they call them in the war was not to go after our freighters and tankers and juicy soft targets but always trying to go after
3: warships exactly exactly and they had no strategy as far as like you know look you saw by the time world war Two breaks out i mean the u.s is making one type of boat I and mean, we're just hammering these suckers out like 10 a month by 1944 you know we have, figured out our strategy. We have figured out how we're going to fight these boats and we are now mass producing them. And the Japanese are still making everything from little tiny midget boats to these massive boats that it literally had float planes on them. Yeah. And so, and so they, and, and that represented this idea. It's like a, it's like sending a kid into a toy store on a, and he just grabs everything he wants without understanding what his activity is going to be. And that's, that's the difference between the United States and the Japanese is that, we were lucky that we had these really awesome submarine officers who, who, who studied what happened in World War One, learned those lessons from it. We got hold of all we got a hold of all the German submarines. We took them all apart. We figured out why their engines were better, their optics were better, their hulls were better. You know, we then set out to re-engineer a boat that would work for us. We also knew as early as you know, literally before the smoke even cleared from World War One, that we were likely going to fight a war on the far side of the Pacific. So we had to build a boat that would work for that type of conflict. And so, you know, we wisely used that time between the two wars and the Japanese just didn't. And it mm-hmm. came back to haunt them with a vengeance.
1: Well, and look, look at like if you look at the Solomon's campaign, I mean, early on, I mean, look, look as early as 1942 or early. Well, of course, by early 43 Guala Canal was a lost cause for him. But. I think it was on an episode of World War II TV, and I can't remember who the guest was, but, you know, Woody, you know, what it, Paul would add, said, what else do you need to illustrate a complete failure of your strategy than you're using submarines to supply your your infantry? Yeah. It's supposed to be an offensive forward deployed weapon going after targets, and you're using it as a supply boat.
3: Yeah. No, I mean, a submarine's a killer in the story. I mean, it is a, it is a it is designed purely as an offensive weapon. And they just didn't get it. <laughs> and, uh, again, to their detriment.
2: Well, and, mm-hmm. and we've mentioned on episodes in the past, I think a lot of that had to do with the inter, I don't want to say interdepartmental, but inter military rivalry that the Japanese had between each branches. Like the Navy wanted to be the end all, be all the Army. As we said before, um, the Army, the Japanese Empire Army wasn't aware that their Navy was built in. You know, building the uh, airstrip on Guadalcanal until oh well, I guess we got to come help or vice versa. Yeah. Wh- whoever started that construction, the rest of their military had no idea. And so I think a lot of that, you know, you're asking about what was the Japanese experience like. Well, we also know that they weren't exactly forthcoming and honest with their numbers losses because they wanted to put up the appearance that they were winning the war yeah, yeah. better than they actually were. So sure. it's, it's hard yeah. to come through. It's hard to come across accurate, you know, detailed descriptions of losses and. Whether it's tonnage, vehicles, or human life,
3: yeah, yeah, and they were hung up fighting the last war, which frequently happens, you know, and then without realizing that this war was going to be not one of battleships, but it was going to be fought under the waves and in the heavens, I and mean, it was going to come go mm-hmm. naval aviation and submarines, you know, and, and and bombardment, army aviation on that end. So,
2: whoops, <laughs> you
3: know, I mean, I hate to say it.
2: Before we wrap up this episode, is there one particular thing that you discovered when, uh, re- researching the war below about the uh, submarines or even the personnel that just kind of blew your mind, or maybe you weren't anticipating being part of that lifestyle or even, you know, just that warfare. Anything? Yeah. You know,
3: I'll, I'll say for stars, I, I, I was able to interview a lot of world war two veterans for this, because again, I was working on this book, gosh, almost 15 years ago, I think. And, um, and so I, I had some wonderful friendships with the guys that I, I really cherish. Um, and they, and I'll say, you know, one of the things it, it was interesting is, is I do think that the Great Depression played a, shaping the type of men that could handle a war like mm-hmm. this. Because, you know, when, and some of the guys I, and, and everyone I interviewed, I said, I asked them, I said, you know, what is, what was your experience in the Depression like? And, and a lot of them were really, really difficult. I mean, you know, their parents had, had died. One of them, is father. you know, they, they'd struggled through poverty and whatnot. So, I mean, they, they were already hardened by that struggle so that for them going on board a submarine, which by our standards today would just seem like incredibly austere, tight, <clears throat> and fine for them was a luxury. Mm-hmm. And it took that, 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 that type of experience, I think, to make them into the, the type of men that could fight these, fight these weapons. And they did. And so uh, that was one of the things I think that really stood out to me when I was doing the research was just kind of how, how they were so defined by that time period that it helped them in this war.
2: You know, it's interesting. You're talking about how living through the Depression made them as durable and willing to do the things that they, they did. And it, it always reminds me of a, a video I saw about two years ago where a, a young lady in her 30s, no, early 40s, she posted a picture of some housewives in the mid late sixties. They're all probably 40, 42. And she was like, look at all these women. They're, they're my age, but they look so much older. They look, so, what, what is the difference between us now? And then it's like, well, because they were born and raised during the depression. <laughs> they lived through world war two, mm-hmm. their husbands their brothers <clears> or <throat> fathers or cousins were off dying. They lived through stress. They didn't have the, you know, the medicines we had, but just that lifestyle, that hard, rugged lifestyle. It's just yeah. it's it, and not to mention that most of those, most of that generation, a large proportion of them were farmers. They were out working in the sun every day. They weren't in air conditioned cubicles typing away on a, a, typewriter all day. Sure, some of them were, but a majority of our country still relied heavily on local and mom and pop farmers, and they were outside working in the weather. Absolutely, much
3: more rural society than we are today. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it.
2: Well, James, I want to thank you for coming on. Your new book, Black Snow, I believe is released on September 6th of 2022. Is that correct? Coming up pretty shortly. And you can pre-order right now on Amazon. Uh, Let's see, Black Snow, uh, Curtis LeMay, The Firebombing of Tokyo, and The Road to the Atomic Bomb by our friend here, James M. Scott. Once again, you can pre-order that now on Amazon and anywhere else you can find your finer books. And we're going to have... James on here again, I think two weeks from now, we're going to do a round two. and uh, oh, is it, I
3: think it's going to be past that because James, you're yes, going correct. to Italy. Isn't that right? Yeah, I leave Wednesday for Italy, and I get back uh, that, that Monday the 1st. So I think it's the 8th is what I have down on my
2: calendar. <laughs> is that a pleasure okay, trip, sure. or are you uh, researching your new Mussolini book? No,
3: no is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be teaching my kids about ancient Rome, Pompeii, all, all, all the good stuff. Bef- <laughs> before we See, wrap you up, got-
1: you have you got something picked
3: out for after Black Snow? I mean, is there going to be
1: another World War II book? Please tell me there is.
3: Well, no, know, you'll you'll find out soon enough. I'm I'm, okay. I'm, I'm writing a proposal right now. So okay. Always <laughs> well, leave them wanting more, tuned. Henry. <laughs>
2: Henry, before we wrap it up, you anything you want to plug?
1: Uh, no, the only thing that that article I wrote for World War 2 magazine is hitting in the August 8th, I think is when that issue comes out. So that's it.
3: Awesome
2: fantastic and uh james you have anything else you want to plug before we wrap this up
3: no just thanks guys for having me on it's been a real pleasure any
2: social media places people can track you down twitter uh instagram facebook i'm
3: on twitter uh more than i am instagram i've got a facebook authors page and uh yeah website jamesmscott.com so for updates
2: we want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast please do us a favor and head over to wtspworldwar2.com Click on that orange Patreon link, sign up. It's a dollar a month. That goes a long way to help support the overhead for the shows we do here at the Digital 410 Network. And uh, while you're at WTSPWorldWar2.com, you can click on the appearance page, and you can see the episodes of World War II TV that Henry was on. You can see the episodes of history behind the page that Jeff was on and myself with Sarah the History Chick, who I believe will be on next week to talk about the USS Indianapolis But thank you guys so much for your continued support, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production.